In reality television, the people are represented by two separate but equally obsessed attorneys. This is their podcast. Hi, I'm Ceci. And I'm Angela. And this is the Bravo Docket. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In reality television, the people are represented by two separate but equally obsessed attorneys. This is their podcast. Hi, I'm Ceci. And I'm Angela. And this is the Bravo Docket. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Bravo Docket. Today, we're going to move over to another reality TV show and talk about Dance Moms. You want to kick it off? Yeah. So I had never seen Dance Moms, but we got a suggestion from a viewer a while ago wanting us to dig into the Abby Lee Miller Dance Mom fraud charges. And that really kind of piqued my interest. And since we're going to be going to BravoCon next week and we're going to be super deep into Bravo, I thought it might be fun to kind of go outside Bravo for a little bit. And I just have to say thank you to that listener for suggesting this because this has some of the juiciest trial transcripts that I've seen. And the whole thing is just a big old hot mess, which, you know, we love mess. So, yes. Totally. And to (laughs) add to that point, I just want to note that our podcast is not all about Bravo. The name doesn't suggest that we're about Bravo. We do all pop culture, all reality TV lawsuits. So throwing that out there so we don't get sued for trademark infringement. Which we're not doing. We are absolutely not infringing. Okay, so Dance Moms. So Dance Moms is centered around the dance studio of Abigail Lee Miller. She apparently was the daughter of a dance instructor who was part of the Dance Masters of America and ran several dance studios. Miller says that she started her own dance studio at age 14 
I don't know exactly how that works legally or if that's even possible, but apparently she began instructing at a very early age. She says she wasn't a fan of performing herself, so she opted for teaching early on. And she says she founded the Abby Lee Dance Company while she was still a teenager. And then in 1980, she opened her own dance studio and that her students have gone on to dance in Broadway productions such as Footloose, Wicked, The Lion King, as well as in Radio City's Christmas Spectacular. And we'll talk about this later on, but after the reality show premieres, her students that were participants in the reality show have gone on to star in movies and have music careers and go to Broadway and do some pretty amazing things. So she had some pretty talented kids in her studio. Yeah, she's a great choreographer and teacher. I've always been curious to see her dance, but I don't I know if any to... videos of that exist. I got curious myself when we were researching for this episode, and I tried to find some, and I couldn't I couldn't find any of her performances. So if any of you guys listening know where some of those are, I'd actually be interested in seeing her dance or perform. But I guess if she started teaching at 14, there probably wouldn't be a lot. Mm-hmm. So much like the Chrisleys and the Judy Chase, Miller and files like for all bank- of Orange County. In all of Orange <laughs> County, Miller files for bankruptcy. And it seems like this is a pretty strong trend at this point that if you file for bankruptcy and then get a reality show as the bankruptcy is going on, you're going to go to jail. <laughs> so. It's not, we're not saying it's causation here, but no, that's, you're not, there's but, strong but, correlation between people who file for bankruptcy and then end up going on TV, going to jail. Especially if the bankruptcy is ongoing while the show is airing. Again, yeah, we're not saying mm-hmm. it's causation, but we're noticing a trend. Mm-hmm. So we have some testimony about why she filed for bankruptcy. So Miller filed for bankruptcy after defaulting on a $245,000 Florida condominium mortgage and a $96,000 mortgage on her dance studio in Penn Hills, a Pittsburgh suburb. And this was according to what her bankruptcy lawyer said. She said that keeping up with the bills in a down economy became difficult. This is 2010, so it's not that long after the financial crash. Her bankruptcy lawyer actually ended up testifying in her sentencing, and so we know a lot more about why she was filing for bankruptcy. Do you want to be the attorney or the attorney direct examining? Mm, I'll be her attorney. How do you know Miss Miller? Miss Miller came to my office in late 2010, I believe, with financial problems and wanted to discuss filing a bankruptcy. All right. And can you describe for the court the nature of the financial problems that Miss Miller was encountering when she came to you? Sure. When she came to us, the most immediate threat was a tax sale on her property here in Pittsburgh. She was in default of that mortgage. She had not paid the taxes on it, and I believe she was in default on the mortgage of a property that she owned in Florida as well. All right. Now, do you remember which property was subject to the tax sale? It was the Pennsylvania property here. It was the dance studio. And was the commencement of the tax sale the precipitating event that brought her to you? Yes. Okay. So what we know from this is that what she was really trying to do was avoid having the dance studio that we see on the show, because apparently she owned that commercial property from being sold off for failure to pay the taxes. And we'll talk more about the testimony from her bankruptcy attorney later on. So Miller later said, quote, what really happened when I refinanced the dance studio building, they didn't put the taxes into escrow and I didn't know that. I was not aware of that. And they always had been because when you build a building, they are automatically included. She's talking about 
the taxes being an escrow. So I owed $37,000. So this whole thing was over $37,000. So what she's essentially saying here is she filed for bankruptcy because she wanted to be able to bring down her debts and keep her property. Now, after she files for bankruptcy, just like the Chrisleys, she ends up getting a reality show. Just like a year later, not even, not even a year later, she gets her own show. Yeah, as the bankruptcy is still going on. And that's, you'll see how important that is as this continues. Okay, so July 13th, 2011, Dance Moms debuts on Lifetime. And I'll just read a description. The show follows the girls on the ALDC Junior Elite competition team as they learn their dances and then compete them at dance competitions all around the country. The show features Miller as an extremely strict dance team coach who over the series relied more and more on criticism, sometimes personal, to motivate the girls with an emphasis on hard work and competition against teammates. Every week on the show, Miller used a pyramid of individual headshots and gave feedback to each girl about her ranking, the previous week's performance, and attitude. So, Ceci, did you ever watch Dance Moms? I did. I watched it when I was younger, but not not to any extent where I could remember people's names or anything. And my mom watched it as well because she was a dance mom. <laughs> you guys might so. not know this, but Ceci is kind of amazing at dancing. You danced for how long? <laughs> I danced. Well, I mean, I feel like it's in my blood because I'm Puerto Rican. So I started dancing salsa when I was really young. And then I think my mom started putting me in like jazz and ballet when I was four. And I danced all the way through college. So I can't do math, but over 15 <sighs> years, I think. That's a. I didn't even um, realize that you danced for that long, and you competed too, right? Yeah. Tell yeah. So tell I, tell us about it. Okay. <laughs> it's cool. It is. Yeah. So I started with ballet and jazz in a dance studio where I would compete, and we, we would do national and local competitions with like the whole nine yards, rhinestoned costumes, our hair slicked back in buns. We wore makeup. The reason I had to get contact lenses was because I was in dance. Wow. Um, so I learned how to do my makeup really early on. Yeah. And we would compete. My first dance was to We Got the Beat by the Go-Go's. I still remember the dance really well. And then when I was about 11 or 12, I started salsa dancing. And that wasn't competitions. That was just more performances. And I started like kind of pushing, like didn't do as much ballet because ballet is just not as fun as salsa. Sorry to those who do ballet. I think even ballerinas would agree with you that it's not as fun. <laughs> yeah, it's just not. And then in high school, I was on our dance team, and we competed there as well, and then also put on performances for the school. And then in college, it was just performances, not competitions. But yeah, I, I was a dance girl. <laughs> That's so cool. Okay, guys, I'm going to see if I can get Ceci to share with us some of her, some clips, some videos, maybe some pictures of her in her <laughs> dance outfits. So I just want to bring this up. I feel like it's probably so individual for each kid. It looks like some of the kids really, really enjoyed putting the makeup and the costumes on for research purposes. I watched several episodes of the show, and then some of the kids weren't as into it. Did you really like having, like, getting to do your makeup and stuff? Yeah. 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 I mean, that I looks liked like... all the outfits. Yeah. Yeah. I liked all the swag because we would have, like, matching, like, bomber jackets and things like that. I liked it. Yeah. So I still like you, it. <laughs> I still like it. I feel like for a kid, if you genuinely, it's not your parent pushing you and you're like really into it, that would have to be so much fun. Yeah, it was great. And I mean, I, I, I did it even without my parents around because I did it in college. So yeah, I just liked it. I liked performing. I liked being on stage. I don't know. It's fun. That's 
I mean, that's really cool. Now, unfortunately, what we see on the show, really, there's several kids who seem to be really into it. But then there's a lot of them that just are like, I want to be a cheerleader, or I want to play soccer, or I don't want to dance anymore. And the parents are just like, no, you're going, you're doing Mm -hmm. it, which obviously, that's, I'm sure, part of intentional for the show drama. But sometimes that was hard to watch on the show. The one Candy Apple mom, her kid was just, you could tell she was just not wanting to do it. And she would say it directly to the camera. I don't want to dance. My mom wants me to. Yeah. That's when it becomes <laughs> difficult. It's when it's your mom's dream for you to do something instead of your own. And I, I never I never felt that way. I think the only times I felt that way was when my mom was like pushing me to get my double turns or something. And I was just like, screw it. I'm just not meant to do two turns. <laughs> but... It was, you know, she was helping me practice. I bet you ended up doing the two turns really well. Yes. <laughs> but that's, like, different. That's different than her. Yeah. That's different than what you see on the show. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I didn't realize it was set in Pittsburgh. Yeah. So there's there was definitely, obviously, reality shows, as we all know and we're all fans of, they take things and then turn them up to 25. So what would normally would be at a 7 or a 10, they take the drama and push it much farther. And there were some very problematic sort of things going on on Dance Moms. And since Ceci genuinely loved dance, enjoyed it, pursued it on her own, I am going to talk about some of these with Ceci and just get her perspective on it as somebody who was not pushed to do problematic things and genuinely enjoyed it. There was a topless showgirls routine Mm -mm. that made the moms uncomfortable. Doing research for this episode... I was watching that, and they've taken this episode down because it was so inappropriate. So the girls are like 9, 10, 11, and Abby Lee Miller choreographs a burlesque-style dance. Well, actually, this says they raged in ages from 8 to 13 at the time, with flesh-colored tops that created the illusion they were naked. All of the moms, except for one, were horrified, and even the judges looked uncomfortable as the dancers performed a provocative routine on stage. So Ceci, as our dance expert, click on the YouTube link. They All of the, the performance has been taken down, but there's a rehearsal where the kids are not dressed inappropriately that's still up on YouTube. Okay, well, and I see the photo from the article of what the costumes ended up looking like. I think they were actually worse than that. There was like a tearaway or something. <laughs> yeah, That's horrendous. No, no child should be in a dance outfit or routine that suggests that they're naked topless. That is horrible. I mean, in my salsa dancing days, we had to perform at salsa clubs, which were, you know, had adults and they were serving alcohol, but we were in and out. Like, we didn't even want any blurring of the lines of us being around adults. And this just takes it so much further. You're like sexualizing children. It's really uncomfortable. (laughs) I don't, I, that's one thing I don't, I didn't understand is that it was completely unnecessary. And having been completely unfamiliar with this prior to researching this episode, looking at some of these kids are so genuinely talented and they're working so hard and there's just no reason to put them in sexualized costumes. There's no point in it. And in fact, whenever Abby Miller did that, the kids wouldn't win because the judges wouldn't want to reward those types of behaviors. Even in season one, she put them in outfits in one of the moms. And this literally made me laugh out loud so hard that it woke up my husband. 
but one of the moms said that her child looked like a prostitute. I laughed so hard. Yeah, it's just uncomfortable. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, you you do wear like tight outfits and stuff, but we were always fully covered up like from the neck down. But like there are a million different themes you can do this routine to. Why does it have to be burlesque? Make it fans or something. I don't know. Oh, God. It's gross. Yeah. Actually, now that I'm looking at this, there's way too many problematic things to even talk about. We'll probably put a link to this in the article. But that was one of the things. Another one was uh, there was a a co-ed dance routine with the kiss on the lips and the Brooke, who was in that dance routine, talked about how it made her feel really uncomfortable and she didn't think her first kiss should be in this manner. And then Abby actually kisses Brooke to show her that it's no big deal, I guess. I didn't watch it because the description of it grossed me out enough. So that just seemed, it just, it's unnecessary. This says it was Maddie. Oh, was it Maddie? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh. When I watched the episode, I didn't watch the whole episode. It was Brooke that was originally going to be doing the dance routine so ugh, okay i just like you don't need to have kissing in the dance routine that just seems unnecessary right they're 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 kids and then in the first yeah they're children there's just so many problematic things going on with this show that we would never get to the legal stuff if, if we talked about all of it is what i'm saying but this does bring us to the legal concerns for children on reality tv so i went down another rabbit hole after watching this because I realized I had no idea like what the actual law is about having children on reality TV. And it turns out it's kind of a legal black hole because there really aren't any. It's not like when a child is acting and child labor laws apply and Fair Labor Standards Acts apply. And it's just kind of the Wild West with this. And it it leaves things open for a lot of exploitation. So I found a law review article about children on reality TV And it's called, Does Exploiting a Child Amount to Employing a Child? The Fair Labor Standard Act's Child Labor Provisions and Children on Reality Television. And this is written by Kimberly Ann Podlis. And Ceci, do you want to just read the conclusion? Because I think that sums everything up. So yeah, this is from the Law Review article. It says, Being filmed by a reality television show does not constitute work. And a parent's decision to put his or her child on reality television does not transform the child into an employee. Therefore, the FLSA does not apply, and its child labor provisions cannot rescue these children from the misguided choices of their parents. Moreover, even if reality show participation were considered work, these children would be exempt from the child labor provisions as performers in a television production. This does not mean that participating on reality television is good for a child, or that no legal right or value or contractual exchange is involved, Rather, it means that, as in two cases, the duty to protect the child and the blame for failing to do so lies not with labor law or the media, but with the parent. To the extent that we focus on the child labor implications of reality television as a means of preventing child exploitation, we divert the focus away from the reality television parents, enabling them to avoid responsibility and risk the welfare of their children. I mean, it makes sense. It does make sense. And... It's a well-written article, but I don't know that I can agree with the conclusion because there are always going to be greedy parents, and the only thing that's going to stop them is the law. So this was written in 2010. I tried to look up to see if additional laws have been put in place, and I couldn't really find anything. It seems like it's still a bit of a free-for-all. I know, again, California seems to have enacted some stronger laws 
but then they just film in other states that don't have them. So, yeah, and I want to defend my position. The reason I think it makes sense is because if you then implement a law that kind of undermines or restricts what a parent can do, which I agree probably should happen in the situations of reality television or forcing your child to work or be an actor, then there's the argument that maybe it could go too far and restrict parents from parenting. So it's one of those like double-edged sword types of laws. Yeah. So I just want to defend my position. Well, no, I think you have a good point because I think especially with children, there's so many things that are child-specific. For some children, it would absolutely be exploitation and they wouldn't handle it and their parents would push them too far. But then for other children, they would want to do it. I really do think you have a good point because there's some things that on an individual basis would be absolutely fine and then you're taking away the right of the parent to make that choice for a child. You probably would have handled it really well if you had been on a show younger because of maturity and work ethic and then your parents would have protected you but even, and so then it's even like, like do, how far does that law go you know and that's right you know does it go to you can't force your kid to be in baseball but right <laughs> we're not sitting here creating the law it's just something to think about no that's really interesting that's a that's really interesting because yeah it's like well so i guess the laws yeah reading from the conclusion in the law review article it's just like, you know, we're going to let the parent decide what's best for their kid. And that's all we can do right now. All right. So now we're going to talk about another show oh, while we're on the topic of children on reality television. And that is the show called Kid Nation, which I watched when I was younger and was actually rewatching recently. You can actually watch the full episodes on YouTube right now. But there's a lot of commentary where people call it the most unethical reality show for children. But it's very entertaining. And these kids act like adults. It's as if, what's that that book, like Lord of the Flies kind of situation? Lord of the Flies, yeah. yeah. Where they're just dropped in this, I think this is, I think there were two that came out around the same time. And they had like people that, that ran the soda shop and then people that ran the chickens. And then they had a mayor. So these kids running their own city and they had survivor-like competitions to win benefits in the city like an outhouse for doing some physical task and there were some kids that voluntarily left just because they missed their mom or they felt like they were too young to be on the show Mm. which is very self self -aware. self aware that's the word oh it was on cbs but it says after being dropped in the middle of the desert the kids met their host, Jonathan Karsh. He would tell them that although they won't have any adults to help them, they will have a group of four leaders called the town council. This is the Lord of yeah. the Flies. This is literally – okay. These four kids were flown in by helicopter in a dramatic flourish, each headed up their own team of children. They were responsible both for running their team and conferring with the rest of the council to keep their camp, an abandoned Bonanza City in New Mexico, up and running. These children were supposed to act like the closest thing the kids have to adults. I mean, it was really entertaining. So, yeah, go watch it. It's all on YouTube. So there are 12 camera crews present to capture all the action. According to contestant Michael, whose 2013 Reddit thread revealed many details about the show, each crew had about four adults, so there were almost always watchful eyes. Additionally, Michael claims to have bum snacks from the camera crew and even speaks fondly of them, saying, I love those guys. The Los Angeles Times reports there was a medic, child psychologist, and an animal wrangler for all the rattlesnakes 
that slithered through town. That being said, there are definitely moments where you would think one of the many adults should step in, like when contestant Colton starts provoking a bull on the outskirts of town. I, wow. I loved it. It was really entertaining. And clearly their parents let them go on it. I was raised on reality TV, so I just found it really entertaining and I never thought of the ethics of it. So there was also a survivor-like show for kids called Endurance. And I remember I wanted to really be on that one. The thing is, though, Ceci, you're so smart and so dedicated. You would have excelled in an, like you would have done really well. I can. That's a really I mean, big if I, compliment. <laughs> I would always want you on my team. <laughs> but not on the Survivor one. I remember being like, well, I can't really be on that one because I wear contacts. So I probably can't do the swimming, the swimming things that they have them do. And I can't even swim. But my my concern was that I wore contacts. So I couldn't be the children's Survivor show. I probably would have crushed it on the, the, the kids making a town one. But no, you would do really well. You would be voted mayor or whatever the council leader or whatever you would have done really well on like the show started like a game i would have died immediately <laughs> no 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 <laughs> i do not sleep outside i love being outside i mean i own a horse i don't mind being dirty but i i don't understand sleeping outside on purpose and maybe that's because i grew up in florida and so when i sleep outside with the alligators and snakes in the swamp i don't i never as a child understood camping. oh well that part of it I, i've but, never been camping so that part of it I can't do either. Did you want to talk about the why they filmed it in New Mexico? The choice to film in New Mexico was apparently not due to the scenic desert backdrop, nor Old West charm of Bonanza City. Instead, the allure of New Mexico was the state's lack of legislation surrounding child labor on TV or film sets. This allowed Kid Nation creators to get creative with their legal language, avoid paying the children for their participation, and keep the cameras on them 24-7. In fact, creator Tom, mm -hmm. does it say Foreman? In fact, creator Tom Foreman claimed that the kids were not working, they were participating, and that they set their own hours. According to communications professor Mark Andreevic, such claims were absurd, and in any other industry, this would be called exploitation. Since kids are legally required to be in school in most states until they are 18, most sets that involve children for prolonged periods of time have tutors present, allowing the kids to both work in entertainment and obey their state's education laws. This was not the case with Kid Nation, reports the New York Times, which had no tutor on set, even despite the fact that the kids were out of school for six weeks as filming began in April 2007. After hearing of the production's potential violations, the state of New Mexico sent a Labor Department inspector to the set. He claimed he was turned away before he could see anything happening in Bonanza City, according to the New York Times. This would be illegal if it's true. Do you want to talk about the bizarre contract that the parents signed? Sure. So this is, again, we're reading from an article. It said, as if those legal loopholes and careful wordings were not enough, parents were also made to sign a detailed 22-page contract that said, among other things, that their children were not actually performing labor of any kind. Instead, they were at summer camp. You know, legally. <laughs> However, the show did not even file the appropriate paperwork to house that many children for an extended period of time, making their supposed summer fun illegal. Additionally, it was not even the summer when the kids were on set. The contract also said... According to the New York Times, that each kid received a $5,000 stipend for their participation, in addition of having the chance of winning $20,000 each week by receiving a gold star from town council. It would not be acknowledged as payment for services like a wage, so the children wouldn't be employees of CBS. This clause essentially excused them from adequately compensating the children, and along with the summer camp clause from limiting their time in front of the cameras. If that wasn't bad enough, 
The contract had a slew of other strange sections. For starters, one clause waived liability for emotional distress, illness, sexually transmitted diseases, HIV, and pregnancy, which came off as quite neglectful since the production involved minors. It also claimed the right to the children's stories in perpetuity and throughout the universe and warned a $5 million penalty should parents or their children violate confidentiality claims. Okay, I just... We have talked about how we would love to get our hands on the Real Housewives contracts, a recent one, and we've gotten our hands on the friend of or participant contract that used to be signed for Southern Charm. I don't know if that one's still used, but that one was fairly recent. As an attorney that has advised individuals and companies and reviewed contracts, I cannot imagine how this passed legal for CBS. I'm just trying to think of the insurance, the underwriters for the insurance for this, and then the the risk management people. I just so we're going to take children, put them out. I, my my brain, I, my brain is blown. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My mind cannot comprehend. Yeah. And even as a parent reading this, and how would that even be in perpetuity and throughout the universe? How would that even be enforceable? I mean, it probably wasn't because there were lawsuits. I would not really want to be the one arguing the enforceability of in perpetuity and throughout the universe to a judge. <laughs> that sounds like something the devil would have you sign in the cartoon. Well, it exists <sighs> online now if you want to go watch it. I think it's very entertaining. Of course, it's at the expense of children, which view at your own risk, but... I mean, a lot of the children have come out since. Now they're like full-blown adults, which is like, wow, I'm getting older. But they, a lot of them have said that they really enjoyed the experience. So there's a silver, a silver lining. All right. Back to Dance Moms. There's been a lot of success. So Maddie Ziegler is a dancer. She was on from the very beginning of Dance Moms. I 
knew who she was from the Sia videos, and she is an amazing dancer. I didn't know she had been on the reality show, and I had, I had seen Sia's music videos like Chandelier and just thought, wow, that is that kid is amazing. So it was neat to see how she was talented from a very young age. She actually wrote a book called The Maddie Diaries, and she really praised Sia, and then she just referred to Abby as her dance teacher. And she says, I did a lot of crying in those early competitions. My nerves were really bad because I felt like so much was riding on every single number we performed. If you watch me in the wings, you'll always see me biting my nails. I put a lot of pressure on myself. I didn't want to disappoint anyone, my teachers, my teammates, my mom, our audience. She said of Sia, Chandelier definitely changed my life. It made me more than just the girl from Dance Moms. It opened a lot of doors and opportunities for me. And she says now she doesn't do anything that she doesn't want to do and that she learned a lot of that from Sia. Ojo Siwa is also... She's a pop star now, and she's been in a lot of things. Mackenzie Ziegler, I think, has been on like a Nickelodeon show. And there's there's several other Google kids from Dance Moms that became famous. There's a lot that come up. Yeah, I mean, it helps that they were on a reality TV show that showed their talent. Yeah. I think that helps. Like, they were legitimately amazing dancers. I really want to see so. your dances from when you were younger. I was just like so impressed I was not like them. I, I bet you were. <laughs> was not. I like bet you them. were amazing. I know this is partially an ADHD thing. I know that now, but I was incredibly athletic, but also incredibly clumsy, and I didn't seem to understand right from left until I was twenty years old. Oh, I mean, I really don't know my right from my left in a moment of panic. But I think when you're learning choreography, it's all mental. A lot of the times, what they tell dancers to do before you go on competition is just to sit and visualize the choreography because. With the music playing. It's just all really, it's just like you you stick to an eight count. That makes sense. I mean, I do show jumping with my horse and you have a very short period of time to learn the course that you're jumping your horse over and your horse doesn't get to see it before you perform. And so I have to sit and I do the same thing. I imagine myself jumping it before I go out and do it. Sometimes I've even sat in my horse's stall and closed my eyes and visualized myself jumping the jumps because I'm allowed to walk it, but I can't get on my horse and ride it, and my horse doesn't get to see the jumps. So that makes sense. So Mm -hmm. now we're into 2013. Dance Moms has been on for three years now, and it's successful. And the bankruptcy case is still going on. So I really enjoyed learning about this because we get so many questions from our listeners about, oh, if somebody's on TV, does that make them more likely to get caught? And the answer with this is yes. Can I just say, like, it it depends because, yeah, in a bankruptcy situation, you can sometimes see someone spending their money or having valuables. But in the instance of, like, Jen Shaw, which we've spoken about, and Bethany Frankel, like we spoke about in our last episodes, those, I think you have to take the context of them a little bit more. Like, if it's about proving this person's character or their propensity to lie or commit crimes or defraud people. I think that's different than bankruptcy, where you're looking at someone's financial means. But yeah, what did the judge say? In the in a bankruptcy case, and we talked, if you listen to our Teresa and Joe Giudice, you know, they got in trouble. They even left out cars that they had. They didn't fully disclose everything. And the bankruptcy judge gave them several times and several chances to amend their pleadings in their bankruptcy case and declare everything, and they still got it wrong. And then they got it wrong again at their sentencing, which is part of the reason why Teresa went to jail. In this case, judges are just like us. The judge is sitting there watching TV, flipping through channels, and sees that there is a spinoff show from Dance Moms that Abby Lee Miller is starring in. And the judge, having been very familiar with Abby Lee Miller's case, 
knows immediately that this hasn't been declared. And it's a federal judge. They're not stupid. They know that there's money in contracts from that. The federal judge convened a hearing on February 1st, 2013, at which time he strongly reprimanded Abby Lee Miller for not disclosing hidden money in TV show contracts. The judge saw this and gave them the chance to amend it. And then they're like, oh, okay. And they immediately amended it. Judge Argesti was clearly annoyed that Miller refused not only to disclose income she earned in 2012, but that Miller struck another TV show contract in July 2012 with no mention of it in the amended plan filed in August 2012. So again, just like Teresa, who got the book deal a month before she signed her bankruptcy pleadings and then just didn't disclose it. The deals were stuck in July, and there's no mention in the amended plan about the $25,000 per episode and extensions in 2013. At the hearing, Miller blurted out that, quote, she didn't even know about them, referring to the signed contracts. Judge Argesti was unpersuaded and addressed Miller specifically with condemning words, quote, and she can shake her head and protest all she wants and go through her TV face. Sassy's going to be Judge Argesti. Yeah, the one who was watching TV. And she can shake her head and protest all she wants and go through her TV face. That's not going to affect me, ma'am. And I'd prefer you stop it, okay? Let's be a little stoic here. These are very serious problems you have and failure to disclose. You allowed the court. You manipulated. It appears your attorneys to go forward. That was good judge voice. Thank you. Having watched some episodes of the show, I can just see Abby Lee Miller making a face and shaking her head. You don't do that to a federal judge, by the way. You don't do that. You are polite. You don't talk unless your attorney or the judge tells you to speak. And you do not express discontent at anything that the court does. It's not appropriate. If I was her attorney, I would be dying, just dying. Yeah, this person determines your fate. So yeah. suck up a little. <laughs> Later during the hearing, Argesti expressed astonishment at the unreported income Miller was scheduled to earn from TV show appearances when he read the terms of the suddenly produced binding deal term sheet. That's $25,000 an episode. That's $250,000 that she is contracted for. Come August, come December, when the hearing took place, she should have let the court know, let you know, this is her attorney, so you could advise the court that she had performed for at least $250,000 worth of services that she was owed for. This is an honor system. You know, I can't be, if it wasn't for me just sitting down and channel surfing one night and coming across it, I would have never thought. I would have just, I would have confirmed a plan and the unsecured creditors would be paid over five years and the debtor would have $288,000, at least in her pocket, that wasn't disclosed to the court. That's the point I'm making. The problem here is the fact that it looks to the court as if she was hiding the ball, and until she got caught, we wouldn't have known about this. That's what I'm concerned about. That's excellent judge voice. And you guys will hear as we go on in the episode, but after looking at the evidence and what was presented, the feeling I get was that she was in a really bad spot when she filed for bankruptcy, and she really needed the bankruptcy to stop from losing her dance studio. But then she gets the reality show contracts and she's got money coming in and she doesn't really need the bankruptcy anymore. But she had gotten the process started and had to finish it. So she, I think, in her head thought, well, this doesn't really have anything to do with why I filed for bankruptcy and I'm making money now and it's none of the court's business. Thing is, though, it is absolutely the court's business. But this white collar stuff where people don't feel like they're actually stealing or they're not actually hurting anybody, sometimes it can be incredibly, incredibly hard to convince your client that 
no, this actually is wrong. And no, we have to be honest and forthright. All she had to do was tell the judge, I have this money coming in. She clearly did not want to and lied and said she didn't remember signing the contracts. Hmm. How do you not remember signing the contracts when you're over here getting $25,000 an episode? We'll get to that. So I will say Miller actually had a better argument than the Chrisleys or, I mean, it wasn't a good argument, but it was a better argument and it was more of an argument. (laughs) Better. (laughs) Well, it was an argument that as an attorney, you're like, I could make that argument with a straight face. Now, I would have a difficult time making an argument about some of the things. I would be furious with a client that didn't disclose this stuff to me. But there's actually some legal arguments that make sense later on. But we'll get to, we'll get to those. I mean, they're not winning arguments, but they're arguments an attorney can make with a straight face. I wonder how much of this is the clients here. So Abby Lee Miller and Teresa being like, oh, well, the application's already done, so there's nothing I can do now. Might as well keep going, you know, like thinking that they can't go back and revise it because it's already underway. Well, I don't know. I would say Just, that is, I mean, partially, they shouldn't think that because their bankruptcy attorney should tell them in very stern, no-nonsense language that anytime there's a change or anything, that that needs to be identified, they can file modification paperwork. And I think she had filed modification paperwork with certain things. She just wasn't being honest about all of it, which is part of what made the court so angry. But also in her attorney's defense, you can't counsel your client about something that your client doesn't tell you. So if she's also hiding it from her bankruptcy Mm -hmm. attorney, the attorney isn't a mind reader. There isn't anything they can do. He should have been watching more TV. <laughs> this is this is why, as an attorney, you should watch reality TV. Exactly. Later on in the criminal case, her attorneys, who are different attorneys from her bankruptcy attorneys, end up arguing that, well, she ended up actually paying everybody, so no harm, no foul, which is just colloquially what they were arguing in legal language. And the court wasn't having it. So then we're, the bankruptcy is still going on. She's getting in trouble. She has not been charged with a crime yet. But in early October 2014, there's more legal stuff because she's sued by dance mom Kelly for emotional distress following a physical altercation between them where Kelly was arrested in charge of the assault. I did find this and watch it. Basically, what happens is there's a mom, Kelly, and she's really upset about something and is like, I'm going to take my daughter. Let's get out of here. And Abby's like, no, like your daughter is 15. She can decide if she wants to stay or not and starts pointing her finger at Kelly. And Kelly's like, don't point your finger at me. And Abby's getting in her face. So Kelly grabs her by the hair. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh. No, Grabs her by the hair and like smacks her. It's just so ridiculous. And then there's another mom and she's like, girls, get out of here. Like shuttling, chauffeuring, moving the girls out of the room and there are just a lot of words, and they call the cops, and Kelly ends up getting charges of misdemeanor assault. They ended up being dropped, but then as did the lawsuit concerning the assault charge. Both of those were dismissed in November 2014, but there was a breach of contract claim additionally where Kelly sued for $5 million for defamation of character, emotional distress, negligence, and breach of contract. The California judge where this was taking place dismissed Kelly's claims of emotional distress and defamation, citing that Kelly signed a contract with the show 
agreeing to be portrayed at the producer's discretion, and the judge did not find evidence that she was forced into acting. Kelly, in one of her arguments, claimed that she wasn't able to quit without violating her contract, therefore finding herself liable to a lawsuit from the production company. She argued that dance moms made her look like a drunk, a bad mother, <laughs> and other untrue likeness <laughs> likenesses, courtesy of Abby's scathing commentary. The judge disagreed that Abby's opinions concerning Kelly or her conduct would be taken at face value to distort her image. But the negligence and breach of contract claims did go forward, and they ended up settling out of court. And the production company also had to pay $17,500 to replace Kelly's wooden floors because I guess there was some filming that occurred in her home that damaged her floors. So yeah, that was okay. another side lawsuit. But her daughter also sued Abby Lee. And this one was for assault because of Abby Lee's outbursts. So the lawsuit alleged that the show producers did nothing to discourage this behavior because it made the show more entertaining. The lawsuit was filed when this daughter, we'll call her Highland, was 13. She said that Abby Lee threw a chair at her during filming of an episode, causing her to run from the room in fear. Her complaint said that Abby Lee is paid to be abusive and bullying to her students and insulted and abused Paige, so it's Paige Highland, on an almost daily basis, including cruel name-calling, insults about Paige's physical appearance, and making offensive false and defamatory accusations about Paige's family. So the only claim for assault was related to the incident where Abby Lee threw a chair. The judge reviewed the footage and found that there was no reasonable way that Highland could legitimately fear being injured by her instructor. Paige argued that she required medical treatment for panic attacks and was seeking more than $25,000 in damages. But after watching the footage, the court decided to dismiss her lawsuit. So this is another instance in which the judge is watching some footage to figure this out. However, before we started recording this episode, Angela and I were talking about this lawsuit, and I thought it was a little odd that they found that there was no assault here because she wasn't injured by her instructor or wasn't legitimately in fear of being injured. That just seems the logic there doesn't add up to Ooh, me. I just, I just remembered think? something from a case I had a long time ago, zone of danger. The judge probably determined that she wasn't in the zone oh, of yeah. danger since she wasn't actually injured by the chair in order to have the fear imminent apprehension of immediate bodily harm, she would have to be in the zone of danger. So maybe she didn't throw the chair close enough to her. Not to be confused with the danger zone. <laughs> in court, it's the zone of danger. But I think any child, I think she was 13 when she filed this. A child, when you're 13, just think about like being 13 in your room in middle school with your history teacher. Okay, yes, Abby Lee is a dance teacher, but think about it, like being in your history class or science class or whatever, and your teacher grabs a chair and chucks it across the room. Yeah. Would you not be scared and be like, what the heck is my teacher doing? That's it. I mean, that's a good point. It's like, because this is her character and she's known to be this loud strict dance teacher it's okay i just i don't think it is I mean, there were so many things on that show that were not okay just from the episodes that i watched in preparation for this podcast episode even just putting the kids in a pyramid and ranking them there's so many things that were inappropriate yeah i was going to say that the pyramid thing reminded me of when cynthia bailey wanted to say who was the prettiest and play that game 
Oh, yeah. And everyone was appalled, like, on Ultimate Girls Trip. And those were adults. Those were grown women being like, oh, I can't possibly. And here you have Abby Lee putting them in a pyramid and saying who was the best that week. The emotional damage. Okay. So on to October 13, 2015. So Dance Moms has been on for five years now. And this is when we get the Department of Justice indictment. The indictment mentions that the bankruptcy judge reviewing her bankruptcy repayment plan when they saw the episode of Dance Moms spinoff, Abby's Ultimate Dance Competition, which then, of course, prompted the judge to demand more information. Both the IRS and the FBI investigated Miller and found that she had hidden $775,000 of her income from the ongoing bankruptcy proceedings. The details are in the sentencing memorandum. October 2015, Abby Lee, I'm just going to call her Abby Lee, even though they say her name formally, was indicted on two counts of a scheme to defraud the bankruptcy court and creditors, five counts of concealment of assets of the bankruptcy estate, 13 counts of false declarations and bankruptcy schedules. The 34-page indictment also describes a pattern of deceitful schemes to conceal by Abby Lee, both TV show revenue earned in 2011 and 2012 as the featured talent on the Lifetime Network reality show called Dance Moms, and to conceal tuition and merchandise sales income she earned in 2012 and 2013 in dance programs she hosted throughout the United States called Masterclass. Indictment counts 8 to 20 represent false declarations she made in both original and amended monthly operating reports in which both knowingly, unreported, or entirely concealed TV show and other business revenue, despite repeated verbal and written warnings from the bankruptcy court that she needed to disclose amounts and sources of all income. Again, the Judiches had the same problem. And the Chrisleys, this just reminds me of the Chrisleys getting the, the tax pamphlets from the IRS saying, you have to pay your taxes. Please pay us. Here's why. This is from her sentencing memorandum, and it says, Unquestionably, Abby Lee concealed an enormous amount of income. She admitted to it in pleading five of the indictment and by accepting responsibility for it under the terms of her plea agreement. Throughout 2012, Abby Lee agreed to accept weekly payroll and talent fee checks. Instead of reporting all TV show income in her monthly operating reports, Abby Lee, notably among other concealments, did not disclose 49 payroll checks for talent fees she received between January and December 2012. Abby Lee clearly planned to conceal this income from creditors since the revelation about the existence of this income would have gone undetected but for the fortuitous, quote, channel surfing by bankruptcy judge, the Honorable Thomas P. Argesti, who early in December 2012, shortly before the confirmation of the First Amendment plan, which is the bankruptcy plan, saw a TV advertisement for another season or spinoff of Dance Moms. This aroused Argesti's concern about Abby Lee's honesty to the court, such that he immediately canceled the scheduled plan confirmation hearing and issued a court order and demanded that Abby Lee file a supplement in support of a Chapter 11 plan, which contains any contracts entered into income received or future income to be received by the debtor. Abby Lee suddenly produced $288,137.57 in 49 TV show paychecks, which were promptly deposited into her attorney's escrow account on January 7, 2013. Abby Lee promptly filed three contracts detailing TV show income under seal with the bankruptcy court. Abby Lee knowingly concealed hundreds of thousands of dollars in income she earned during the bankruptcy. The evidence of this is incontrovertible. All the while, Abby Lee was misrepresenting, lying, and understating her assets as reported in bankruptcy filing while continuously scheming to avoid disclosing income to the court. Did you want to talk about the June 20, 2016 charges? So it was found out around that time that in 2014, 
She had friends divide and smuggle $120,000 that she earned from her Dance Moms Australia Masterclass Tour into the United States from Australia, and this violated the customs and immigration requirements to declare any cash over $10,000. It came out that she made them carry this money for her in little plastic baggies across the border. And so because of that, she received 20 counts of financial and customs fraud. And this got really messy as this was going on. So she's already been indicted for bankruptcy fraud. Then Abby Lee on Instagram and in filmed interviews with paparazzi claimed that the dance moms were the ones that were actually smuggling it and that they never gave her the money and that she never saw the money and that her attorney told her if the money's never been in your hands, that it's not her money. These Instagram posts are still available. I found them through links off of Reddit when I was researching. And Abby Lee actually posts pictures of one of the dance moms working at one of the merchandise tables. It says, the real Abby Lee, today is going to be a tough day. Seems as though important facts were admitted from the case, exclamation point. Just wanted to let the world know Moms and girls all made money, lots of money, exclamation point. Nobody was doing me a favor out of the kindness of their hearts, exclamation point. And then she says, she posts a picture. This is the real Abby Lee, her Instagram saying, whose corporation is M&M? And then it says in like blue letters, whoa, that's their profit from one little trip and three events. And then she circles a signature and she says, that's not my signature. (laughs) I'm sure this was deleted because her attorney said that you can't do that. But she's trying to place the blame on some of her dance moms. Yeah, you also put in here a post where the caption is, thank you for welcoming us with open arms and paws too. And then there's a little asterisk. Note who's setting up all the ALDC merchandise. Same one who stuffed the backpacks. It's like a little cheeky shade. So this is, again, a statement from Abby Lee. Quote, the moms were in the lobby area. They are selling the merchandise, taking pictures, noting that the transactions were made in cash because, quote, you can't get a credit card machine in other countries unless you have a bank account in that country and you rent them from the bank. I don't know if that's true or not. Now you would just have Stripe or a square thing or whatever. I don't know if that was true back then. And then she says, I can show you all the moms 1099s for what they made. Well, now she wants to show all the documents. Not to the bankruptcy court, but now she does. Not long after she got those charges for the Australia currency smuggling, then June 27, 2016, she enters a guilty plea, and she pleads guilty to bankruptcy fraud. She has a sentencing hearing that lasted several days in which the bankruptcy trustee from the bankruptcy testified, FBI special agent testified, accountants testified, Her bankruptcy attorney from the original bankruptcy testified. There's a lot of testimony. We have the transcripts of that testimony, and some of it is really, really interesting. I think we're going to start with the bankruptcy trustee because, one, it's going to answer a lot of questions that you guys have about how this investigation process works and what you have to disclose in bankruptcy. And it it gives more context for why we keep saying they need to finish the Girardi's bankruptcy probably before there's any criminal charges. And then also it gives more context for the Dujiches and the Chrisleys. This is going to be a two-part episode. I wish we'd have gotten it all today, but there's just a lot. Part two is really juicy. We have testimony from the FBI special agent. We have the emails that Abby Lee Miller sent that get read onto evidence, and they include emails from producers from the show. 
that are very interesting. And we talk about what sentence she got and why, and you'll learn a whole lot more. Yeah, and this is a great precursor to the Jen Shaw sentencing, because as with Avery, I'm recording. <laughs> She's almost done. What did he do? I couldn't hear anything. <laughs> oh, he opened the door and goes, hello. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm obviously in the closet. Like, I'm just chilling in here looking at my clothes. Oh, he thought I was done. Well, we're almost done. But anyway, so like with Jen Shaw, Jen Shaw also pled guilty. She's going to be having her sentencing hearing soon. It did get pushed. Like, I'm sure everyone has seen. It got pushed to December. So... This is kind of like a, a preview of what might occur in Jen Shaw's sentencing hearing. So the level of information that's going to perhaps come out and the testimony that'll come through maybe at her sentencing hearing. Just it's just like an example, since I don't think we've gone through a full one yet for our listeners to kind of get a sense of what is involved. Yeah. And if you're listening to us and you like this and you haven't listened to a lot of our past episodes and this is interesting to you, we did episodes on the co-defendants in Jen Shaw's case and discussed their sentencing, what they were charged with, and how that worked out. And it's a it's really interesting. There's a lot of detail in there. So definitely go back and listen to that while you're waiting for our next episode. All right. And on that note, we will see some of you at BravoCon, yeah. <laughs> which is this weekend. We're so excited. so excited. But yeah, thank you as always for listening. Thank you as always to our Patreon supporters. We appreciate you very much. Bye, guys. Bye, legal team. The Bravo Docket is part of the ACAST Creator Network. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Bravo Docket is part of the Acast Creator Network.